What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to say thank you to everyone who is a sponsor of this podcast. That's all of you listening that support us on Patreon. If you'd like to join our merry, merry group of people in our BXP team, please get over to the Bestseller Experiment com forward slash support and we'd also like to say thank you to all our academates as well in the bestseller academy um all of you make this possible and we salute you with all the incredible work that you're doing writing your books and we are there supporting you every step of the way mr stay how are you this week i'm very good i'm very good indeed i'm very excited about our guest because it's not often we get to oh, we haven't done this in a while you know all I know, three of us talking to fun, a guest together it? this is really exciting and it's a wonderful 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 guest and i think this is going to be a really really cool episode there's so much to talk about we have got the wonderful josie lloyd on the podcast this week josie has written 15 15 best selling novels also as josie lloyd joanna reese she's also written the number one hit come together which she co-authored with her husband emlyn reese co-writing oh boy we've got lots to talk about there uh, the book was number one for 10 weeks published in 27 languages and made into a working title movie uh josie's also written several best-selling parodies with emlyn including we're going on a bar hunt uh, but josie has a new book out in 2017 josie was diagnosed with breast cancer and urged by a friend to keep fit she joined a running group on the brighton seafront and uh, just before her third session of chemo she ran the brighton 10k uh and uh, out of that has come from those experiences has come her novel the cancer ladies running club which is inspiring and uplifting and the summer read so josie welcome to the podcast how are you today thank you so much for having me i'm delighted to be here i'm fine thank you yeah i'm really stuff. i'm i'm pretty top it's absolutely wonderful to have you, Josie. And we were just lamenting in the green room before we went online. Life with lockdown with teenagers. How much fun is that? <laughs> well, you know, as I, as I was saying, it was very, uh, it was a, quite an interesting thing because when the lockdown happened, um, Emlyn and I have been writing at home since, you know, the dawn of time. We've been here writing novels together at home for 20 years. So when it first happened, everyone said, oh, we're going to be at home. We were like, <laughs> we've got this people <laughs> we do this all the time um but actually what I hadn't factored in was uh having three hungry teens marauding around the house is quite difficult to makes it quite difficult to concentrate and also I kind of I, I realized something very fundamental about my writing process during lockdown which was sort of partly about having the children around I I realized that for like 20 years that I've been writing I've always been thinking, if only I had more time, if only I kind of didn't fill up my time with my social life or all the stuff that I do, if only I didn't go to so many, don't 
go to so many lunches. If only I spent more time being a proper writer, I would get more writing done, right? And somehow during this very busy period of my life, my very busy life, I've managed to write all these novels and actually kind of get away with it. And so then I had lockdown and I had all the time in the world to write tumbleweed tumbleweed I was just like oh this is really difficult and then the teens are coming in every three seconds going I'm hungry and I'm like I can't write anything what's happened <laughs> so yes it was an interesting it's an interesting thing it's fascinating isn't it because I mean I've worked from home for, for about 25 years and I felt the summer's like yep absolutely got this come on guys what tips do you want about writing from home and then what I didn't realize is is that a lot of my work is doing doing this like doing video online and stream and every two minutes I'm in there saying will you turn off the Netflix I'm record I'm trying to record a podcast and and it's like all of a sudden you know, you you have to kind of like triple your bandwidth. I know, Mark, you've had the same problem, haven't you? In your house, it's like I've, I had to install an entire new internet. I mean, we've we've got <laughs> a new antenna, <laughs> cables around the house. Elon yeah. Musk launched a satellite for me. It's been a real bummer. Yeah, but we finally got it. I've, sorted. I mean, I've had to, I've had to learn to to write with music on. And actually, I wrote my second. Jo- I've, I've got my Beats headphones, but I wrote my second. Uh, Joanna Reese book in my trilogy during lockdown, uh, which was all set in Paris in um, 1928. And I've just done a sequel. So I did the sequel, which I finished recently, which is all set in uh, 1929 in New York and stuff. So I've got a 1920s playlist that I play on my kind of headphones, which kind of helps infuse the writing a bit, a bit which is quite good. So the, so the kids kind of say, what are you listening to? <laughs> and they'll be sort of like... so yeah it's quite interesting but it is I think it's for everybody who works at home and everybody has had their writing and their kind of working life thrown upside down by this and um the fact that anybody's written anything at all is quite a miracle to be honest yeah what do you think is the thing that changed though because it's interesting you said that you know you wish you had more time what's caused the change do you think with with lockdown and your writing um I think that the main change is that I am quite a people person, even though I do something that's quite solitary. Um, I'm quite a gregarious person and I'm quite an extrovert. And I realise that I get a lot of my inspiration and a lot of my creative energy from all the other things that I do apart from writing, all the other people that I see. I love going and people watching in restaurants and trains and stuff. And actually, what I've really missed about lockdown is those nights where you those days where I go to London on the train I get there I'm a little bit late for a meeting I go in a cab have a really profound conversation with a black cab driver right go to an event probably get a bit squiffy on free white wine there's nothing better than publishers free white wine right and then come back on the train have a totally random conversation with somebody on the train and um maybe a bit of a sing song as well you never know and um and that sort of thing really kind of is what feeds my creative energy all those kind of stories and I found just looking at the same four walls and my family members much as I love them to bits I was I didn't really get that sense of creativity going that I normally do and I realized that also I like I like writing on the hoof what happens for me my writing process is I sit in this study faffing about like getting the dust from between my keys and I refuse to move until I've written my thousand words but what happens is that I'm just about to leave the house to go on a 
I don't know, on a school run or something, and a tiny snippet of, of a scene will come to me or a little bit of dialogue, and I'm something like that. And I can write a thousand words really, really fast, but it won't come unless I've sat with bums on seats doing the kind of time until that moment arrives. And that is quite difficult when that gets interrupted. We're uh, we're obsessed with writers' routines and habits. Are you a, a, a I mean, a thousand words. So is, is that your target? And are, are you a write every day kind of person? I have to write every day, um, and I have to do a thousand words because you can't actually write a novel unless you actually put the groundwork in. And I'm a great believer in getting it written and getting it right. I'm also, after all these novels, I've kind of realised that um, you never actually know what a novel is until you finish the last line. It's mm. for me. Writing is very much like uncovering and I've learned to trust that it's uncovering in the dark and there's a really annoying thing that happens that when you kind of finally revealed your novel and you and you thought it was one thing but it's actually turned out to be completely a different thing and you've got the nature of the beast and you've revealed this amazing sculpture of a novel you go ah oh, if I'd known it was that I'd have done it differently from the start. If I'd known, oh, if I'd known it was that, I'd have done it completely different. And you know, so you always have that going on when you've yeah. done it. But it is, it is, it, it does feel like a clawing in the dark all the time. Um, and so you just have to keep going because if you stop, you can think too much and you can just think, shit, I'm in the dark and I don't know what the hell I'm writing about. So mm. that's that's where I'm that's where I go. So I learn more about and I also learn. I've learned more to trust my instinct, trust my uh, subconscious mind. I think I think one of the greatest tools a writer has is um, the power of their subconscious mind. That it's all it's all there. It's all churning over in the compost heap, and you just have to sit at a computer long enough for that shoot to come out of the compost heap. That's I love that's, it. That's the key. You just you just hit two of my most favourite things in the world gardening and subconscious mind <laughs> i love it I, I love this idea of uncovering in the dark it kind of reminds me of like i see my kids playing minecraft or age of empires and you don't see the map until you actually kind of move forward and then it starts to reveal itself and i yeah. love this idea that, that this your novels kind of slowly reveal themselves to you now for people that struggle to write even 200 words, though, which we know there are many out there, which is our, mm. our challenge. We have a challenge where we have lots of people, over a thousand people writing 200 words a day. Some people get really stuck on this idea that they're not very good 200 words. Now, you write a thousand words every day. How often would you say those thousand words are like top, top notch, Josie kind of triple A star? And how often would you say you look at that and think that was a, that was a bad day at the office? Um, <laughs> I think there's, there are two things here. First off, I always write at the beginning of all of my documents. And the one thing is my mantra that I kind of, that uh, is the thing that kind of can shut up my critic is uh, you're free to work. I mean, this is a Natalie Goldberg phrase from, from of old. She, she writing down the bones, which is one of the most influential books that I've ever written, read about writing. She says, you are free to write the worst crap in the world and that is a very important thing to remember that you are free to write absolute junk so actually I'm just going to get get the words down interestingly the kind of the hook of what I'm trying to write the kind of little hook the the nugget tends to be the same and it can be overblown and quite often I've said it 
in those thousand words 20 times, 20 different ways. Um, and so then it's a question of editing it down. And those 20, those thousand words quite often in the editing process become a paragraph or eventually they get cut. But unless, but they've been part of the uncovering journey. And unless I had those a thousand words down, I would never get to the really good bit. So there is quite a lot of, um, there is quite a lot of thing. You have to get the words down in order to get the right words. If you see what I mean, for me, that's that's how. so. So the answer to the question is sometimes, on a miraculous day, I will write a thousand words and it will pretty much be all there. Sometimes I will write a thousand words and they will get cut. But you mm. just have to keep the that. You have just have to keep work out up because mainly because you have to just keep thinking in your mind and actually what what I've noticed with my writing with my writing process. I go into my document and I read through the first chapters and I comb them and every time I go into the first chapter I always change a word or two or rejig a paragraph or something until by the time I finished it's so overblown and overwritten that the best thing I've learned to do is always to cut my first two chapters right at the very end brilliant that's interesting because we cut the first chapter of what well, we were told to cut the first chapter of our book back to reality <laughs> and um i'm hearing oh, that's quite happened. that's quite a common thing isn't it because yeah. it's, it's it's the warm-up it's the stretch yeah and <laughs> you just, don't need it you, no. you don't usually don't need it because you're writing your way into the characters and actually you've you've defined them much better further on down the down the line so it just you know. it just happened I, i've written a film which will hopefully be out early next year and it just happened with the opening scenes on that as well it was yeah. like actually we don't need this cut to the chase you know get to the action yeah brilliant yeah yeah, yeah. now do you have a particular routine in your day jc because you've written 19 books that by anyone's standard is is a lifelong achievement i mean some people would love to really have done it um, uh, How, how's he, it? How's your how's your structured day? Do you, do you write a thousand words at the same time each day, or how does it work? Uh, depends, uh, but mainly I'm a morning person, so I get up and I do a qigong routine. So qigong is like um, Chinese yoga, basically, mm. but it's it's kind of like slow moving meditative, and I do it in my my neighbours must think I'm an absolute scary crazy woman because I'm in my dressing gown with a bubble hat on <laughs> and a pair of trainers no socks undone trainers I might add uh, on my little stoop just here and I do my my deep breathing and I greet the day and then I sit down and then I don't the the only way I can get anything done is if I do it in the morning first thing and I haven't opened my email or looked at my phone because if I look at my phone all my emails I just get completely distracted. And the only way that I can actually get any work done is to do it before I've even looked at it. So usually I've written a thousand words before half past nine. That's brilliant. I like I like yeah. to call that banking it because the things I've always said, we do a lot of coaching on the, the academy. And one of the things that we've always talked about is the earlier you can write your words, the less probability there is that your day's going to go pear-shaped, oh, right? Yeah, you can bank yeah, it in yeah, the morning. Just have to do it first thing. Yeah, I mean, I some people, it's, it's, you know, it's horses courses, though. Emlyn's much more of a, like, 5 till 7 p.m. kind of a writer. He always gets into his writing at that sort of time of the day. But I have to do it early. 
Well, let's uh, let's talk about co-writing with him because Mr. D and I we co-wrote a book. It nearly destroyed our friendship. Uh, you've co-written, I think, at least six novels with Emily plus parodies. Yeah, seven. yeah five parodies. How, how do you stay sane and uh, stay together? Well, more importantly, <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, the thing is, our writing relationship was uh, established way before we actually got together. So um, it's quite a funny story. So basically, I was writing my first novel. It could be you which um, I it was a completely green novice writer. So when I started writing my first book, I was working in sales promotion in um, an agency. So I was writing the back of Sugar Puffs packets, you know, those cereal packet promotions. So I was writing Honey Monsters soccer pop-ups. And, <laughs> I, Excellent. and my epiphany moment came <clears throat> when I was writing a coca-cola promotion and I was it was about 10 o'clock on a Friday night and I was writing the terms and conditions that had to go in a tiny space that was going on a poster that was going on the back of loo doors in service stations urging the staff to sell more coke and then they could get a baseball cap I mean <laughs> I was like no I want to write a novel I'm a novelist uh, so I really wanted to write a novel. So I basically, I jacked in my job and I sold the car, dumped my boyfriend, um, changed my life, got a job as <laughs> a waitress. I know, I, so I really literally threw my toys out the car. I'm going to go, I'm going to be a novelist. Anyway, so I sat down and wrote my first novel, It Could Be You. And um, I gave it to Dawn, who was a friend of mine from, a friend of a friend from university. He was working at Random House. And she, she edited it for me, famously. Can I swear on your podcast? Yeah, yeah we just have to put a big E thing on it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so she wrote a star on one page, and four pages later she put another star, and in between she wrote, one fuck too many. <laughs> and that was her editorial <laughs> advice. And so I was like, okay, so I rewrote the novel, and then it went up the chain in Random House until, until it got to this woman who said, well, this girl can write, but I'm off on maternity leave. She needs an agent, and Vivian Schuster, Curtis Brown, owes me a favour. So she said, send it in to Vivian Schuster. So I sent it in to Viv and Emlyn was Viv's assistant and he read my first draft. And so I was called in to meet Viv and I walked in, I cycled to the Haymarket, had no idea what an agent did. I was like, oh, so you're Jilly Cooper's agent and George McDonald Fraser's agent and Margaret Atwood's agent. I was like a bit awestruck. And I said, well, what, what are you going to do? She said, darling, darling, you know, come with me and I'll, you know, I'll get you a book deal. And so she got me, uh, come, uh, it could be you, published. And Emlyn was the one who made me a cup of tea and helped me sign the contracts and said, I'll, I'll ring up the publishers and see if I can get you tube posters. I'm like, oh, you've got my vote. <laughs> And, uh, and we became kind of confidants. And he was working in Curtis Brown. He published his first novel. So we're in the sort of same boat. And then we used to go out drinking together and advising each other about our love lives. And he was writing his second novel. And one night we got very drunk. And the next morning he rang me up and he said, do you remember what we were talking about last night? And I was like, what, what, what? And he said, well, do you remember we said that we might write this all down? and write a book together and I can remember being my little hangover and going yeah okay yeah let's give it a whirl so we decided to write this book together and he wrote the boy's point of view of a relationship and I wrote the girl's point of view of a relationship but we weren't together and he it was like a novel of letters so he would write one chapter give it to me for a reaction and I'd be like you can't do that to my character and I'd roll up my sleeves and I'd be like right 
And I would write the next chapter. And this is before email, people. This is a very long time ago. And I would give it, and I would actually physically take the chapter to him and he would read it and then physically print out a chapter and give it back to me. So that was how we kind of learned to write. We were kind of very much remotely writing together. Um, but my main, my main point was that I wanted to make him laugh. And I was writing. He was my audience. I wanted to make him laugh and to impress him. And that's how we got that's how we got writing. So our writing relationship was very much formed before we actually got together. And then we did get together as a result of writing this book. And then we had to kind of learn to write together collaboratively. But it's always been we've been in different studies and we will kind of write alternate chapters and give it give it to each other for feedback but we've as over the years we've become a lot more collaborative so with the parodies for example we kind of just sat down and just giggled about the whole thing and (laughs) how we could make it funnier and it was just you know a fun we're quite good at kind of pursuing ideas like that that's such a brilliant story now I don't want details but at what point during this writing process did you start to realize that you were falling in love well (laughs) we were spending all this time together and we were writing this real warts and all book about 20-somethings dating. And uh, Jack and Amy meet each other at a club and they kind of sleep together. And then they kind of deal out, deal with the fallout and kind of realise they actually kind of really liked each other. We, on the other hand, were being completely Victorian. And my friends were saying, do not blow it. <clears throat> do not blow it with Emlyn because he is your writing partner. You'd be signed up to Random House two books we'd had this massive book auction we got the a big deal with working title film it was all very exciting and um I couldn't blow it because he was my you know he was the one person that I couldn't get together with because he was my writing buddy um anyway so we were spending all the time together and eventually I said to them but there was definitely kind of chemistry building between us and I we were in this restaurant in London and I said I'm gonna talk about this and he said what and I went about this you know this and he went absolutely not and left the table I was like oh that didn't go terribly well (laughs) that wasn't exactly how I planned it anyway he came back about a minute later and he went there were 10 really really good reasons why we can't get together and then I stood up and kissed him and then he was bagged and tagged that was it I mean that's just to honor you both you know how incredible that you've you've you know gone through this journey you've got your three wonderful kids you're in a lockdown and everything's going great I mean that's such an inspiration to everyone out there because um I hear a lot of stories about lockdown and relationships right now yeah. there's a lot of like um people out there who are, who are struggling because they're not used to having so much time but actually you know what the fact that you've done this and this is how you've always we've worked always together probably together, yeah. you're saving grace well we've always been together 24 7 you know we've, since he you know since the beginning so yeah. we've been, we're very used to spending time with each other we're, we're a bit uselessly joined at the hip actually because we, we don't really spend that much time apart from each other but we mm. as a result we are very very close friends as well yeah. as you know husband mm. and wife so we, and it's nice to sort of work together so we're very lucky in that respect but it does boil down as I say to my friends who are struggling with uh with all things in covid times it does boil down to kindness people say how what is the what is what is the secret to re- a good relationship what is the secret to your law and it's kindness is actually the key for everything that's all you need just to be kind well that's it. Here's, here's a no lump, secret. 
Here's a lumpy segue to your latest book. Let's talk about kindness oh, and friendship. I love lumpy segue. See what you did there. See what you did there. Oh, I've done this before. Um, oh, well done. This, of course, is a solo effort, Josie Lloyd novel, Duh. and uh, you know, and with good reason. This has got. Could would would it be fair to say this is possibly your most personal personal book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's one that I had to write. I mean, it felt very strongly that I had to. Uh, I had to write this book. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got, I basically, I was called for a scan, uh, a routine scan. So they said, we're testing women under 50 to do voluntary mammograms. Would you like to come for a mammogram? And I said, oh God, okay, I'll go. But it was just before Christmas and I was a bit, I was so busy. I nearly didn't go. But Emlyn said, go, because I'd noticed this tiny, tiny dimple appear in the bottom of my left breast. Just, but I, you can only see it when I put my, arms over my head it was not something I'd, I'd been to the doctor about it and they'd said oh no there's nothing to worry about it's no lump, nothing to worry about anyway I mentioned this in the scan and the woman said well we will call you back as a matter of course because if you've noticed any kind of change in your breast tissue we'll call you back so I knew that there was going to be another appointment coming so we had Christmas and then it was my sister's 50th we had a big party in Bath and we had her birthday on the 1st of January and on the 3rd of January, I get to my scan appointment. And uh, I'm still, to be honest, half woman, half champagne at this point. I haven't really taken it in. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realised that I'm in the quiet room, which I wrote about in the first chapters. And I realised that they're kind of sitting me down and telling me that they've seen unusual breast tissue. And boom, I have breast cancer. And it was just such a massive, massive shock. And... One of the things that I did, because I'm a writer, because it's, I, I kept a diary of it. I kept a journal of the whole thing. And um, one of the things that really struck me so strongly for me when it happened to me was um, I suddenly went from being Joe, Josie with kind of a career and Emlyn and girls and a uh, nice house in Brighton and all nice social life. I said, all of that was erased. I was suddenly, she's got cancer. You know, I'm suddenly labelled. I felt like this massive, giant, great big brand had been put on my forehead and people started treating me differently and I wasn't allowed to have a sense of humour. And, you know, it was very, I was suddenly, all everything that was about me was suddenly erased. Anyway, after, so uh, it, it was a very kind of important book for me to write and I really wanted to write about it just to do some debunking because... One in eight women in this country get breast cancer. We all know, you will know, we all have been affected by breast cancer. Any kind of cancer. One in two of us are going to get cancer in our lifetimes. And yet we don't speak about it. It's very behind. People are very <gasps> about cancer. Um, and it really is the bogeyman. And we need to kind of start talking about it. We need to start opening up the conversation like they are in Australia with skin cancer, for example, where it's part of their culture and people talk about it and they talk about prevention. We, it's got to stop being this kind of, very scary thing because there are many many women like me who are not just surviving but thriving there's lots of people who don't survive I'm not whitewashing it and I'm not trying to soft put a soft soap on it but there are lots of people who are thriving the other side of cancer and we need to talk about those stories as well as the you know cancer particularly in fiction is always used in such a mawkish terribly earnest and heartbreaking way and actually it's your life doesn't stop because you've got cancer you don't stop being a mom you don't stop having problems at work you stop you stop being a wife or a friend you know all of it life still goes on so 
that was I really wanted to write a slice of nice life novel about that. Now, for people that didn't see on the video, Mark holding up the book, it's the Cancer Ladies Running Club. Like, I have a copy here. You have a copy here. It's a beautiful Hello. cover. I love the blue. Yeah, this is, now, this is going to be good. Hopefully, I'm, but it was supposed to come out last year, so I'm very excited about it coming. They they, they pulled it because of COVID, but um, it's coming out in May. So now, the story behind this book is that you wrote this you wrote this journal during your own journey, mm. and. I mean, curious, you decided to write it as, you kind of used it as inspiration for a fiction book. Hmm. Um, what was the reason you decided to do fiction rather than kind of like, a, almost like a kind of a non-fiction about your personal journey? Uh, because um, I wanted it, because I'm a fiction writer um, and I've never really written non-fiction. There's also quite a lot of non-fiction books about cancer and people's journeys and stuff. And I wanted something that was a women's commercial fiction book out there there was a you know not women's but a commercial fiction read for everybody that was accessible um and it took me quite a while actually because I mean also quite a lot of the stuff in the book happened to me so Ros one of the mums at school said you've got to keep fit when I got diagnosed and I went no I'm going under my duvet thank you very much and she went no 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 you've got to keep fit you know they're building uh gyms in oncology wards in Australia you've got to keep it anyway so I went down to the seafront to meet her group of runners who were these women who were all going through cancer and it was a bit like being very heavily pregnant and meeting new mothers because I was assaulted with all these kind of terrifying stories of what (laughs) what I was about to face but I also really liked all their gallows humour and actually that they were quite irreverent about what was going on and anyway so I landed up running with them and about three weeks in this I went down and there was a press reporter there and they went oh so great you're doing the Brighton Marathon 10k and I was like the what (laughs) Ros went oh didn't I tell you I was like no you actually did not (laughs) she said oh no this is the Brighton Marathon 10k training group so anyway so I landed up running uh the Brighton Marathon 10k as you mentioned before uh just before my third chemo so I was running balls and I didn't even know whether I'd get around I just thought I'll give it a whirl Anyway, so as I was running, all these women kept coming up to me and tapping me on the shoulder and going, clear five years, keep going, clear two years, keep going. And they're all running for kind of cancer charities. And I was like, oh, this is really amazing. And then halfway around the race, I saw this woman's picture of health, gorgeous hair. She said, oh, I had stage four cancer. They'd written me off. Uh, But I ran all the way through my running treatment and I'm fit to flee. And uh, she was wonderful. We had this lovely little chat and off she went. And then on the last turn of the race, she'd waited for me. And she said, oh, I've been waiting for you. And I said, what is it? She said, I just want to have a chat with you. And I said, what what about? And she said, well, when I was going through my treatment, I was at my lowest ebb and I was in a cafe in London. And um, this woman across the cafe spotted me and said, listen, I know what you're going through. I've been there. We've all been there. Um, but I want you to know that your life is going to be better than ever on the other side of cancer. And she'd taken off this little necklace, this little butterfly necklace that she'd given to this runner. And the runner then said, I have been wearing this necklace, this necklace that I still wear. See this little necklace, butterfly necklace. She said, I've been wearing this little butterfly for three years. And I realise now that it's time to pass it on. And I want it to now be your little butterfly of hope. And she said, I want you to wear it and know that your life will be better than ever the other side of cancer. And I was like, wow. We had this like lovely little hug and a few tears and off she went. And I don't even know her name. And I was so inspired by this kind of butterfly of hope necklace story and so touched that she'd given me this 
beautiful sort of little talisman that I could just wear and know that and remind me of that amazing day that I can sort of write this is a really good hook for a book this is what I'm going to write about so then it was very easy to write a to, to take that and my experience and put it pull it all together but it took me quite a few iterations before I got the kind of before I could really fully take Kira's story and make it her own or not mine and putting all the stuff in with her fight with Lorna and her business partner um, and that conflict was what really kind of propelled it into fiction so it was quite an arse over tip way of making a right writing a novel to be honest you know but <laughs> there we go <laughs> now if we can if now you know you know how serendipity works in this world if if the lady who gave you the butterfly of hope is actually listening to this interview oh, <laughs> right please. if we can if if anyone knows who this lady is that ran the yeah. details it was the tank the brighton 10k, the brighton 10K in 2018 okay uh, yeah 20 no 2017 2017 and yeah. and, and this lady looked and she, like she, and had, she had dark hair she must yes. have been about my age she must have been about 45 50 yeah. and uh yeah she said that she'd had cancer and that she was I don't know what type of cancer she'd had actually hmm. but she said that she'd had cancer but she gave me this little this little necklace which is very okay. sweet so yeah so everyone check out the necklace ah. on, the, on the YouTube recording and if we can get hold of it will you send her a copy of her book oh god yes wouldn't that yeah. be awesome? <laughs> yeah, and actually, my and actually, what's really exciting marketing-wise, my friend Alice, who runs Posh, Posh Totti, which is kind of a personalised jewellery kind of company, is quite a famous jeweller. Uh, she's making little butterfly of hope necklaces to be marketed with the book. Oh, fantastic! Never had a marketing thing before to go with the book, but that's very exciting. So yeah, oh. so we're going to be giving those out as uh, there's going to be some promotions to kind of win some because when you get cancer, it's very difficult. Because people give you flowers and they don't really know what to say to you. They just, they really feel that they need to give you a gift and they give you flowers, which is great. But then you run out of vases and then your house after a week looks like a mausoleum and it's really horrifying. And And if you've got hay fever, you're absolutely. (laughs) And then you're kind of of like down to the jam jars and all the gravy dishes, the the gravy jugs. And I'm really, you know, these beautiful flowers that people said. So, you know, it's nice to be able to give some, something to somebody that means something so i hope this carries on this butterfly of hope necklace as a result of this book i love it i absolutely love it now let's talk a bit about how this changed your life because obviously there's there's a stage when you you first get the news and you go into shock Mm -hmm. because you never think it'll happen to you um what how did you how did you kind of come out of that stage and how did you start living your life in any way differently once you realised what was happening? Um, well, that's a very good question. When it, I mean, and actually that's what I really wanted to write about is this, what happens when this terrible shock happens to you and then you're on a journey, you've left the old shores of you and you're travelling to the new you, but you don't know how that's going to be when you get there or if you're going to get there. Um, how has it changed me? Well, kind of in a, in many ways. One of the reasons, one of the one of the things that I came to as a great realization about it was that um, I I have been busy for thirty years, just as a person, busy. You know, really living by that mantra: if you want something done, ask a busy woman. I was that woman. I'm kind of always loading stuff on, and very happily doing everything for everybody else. So, really, you know, putting a lot into being a mum and 
friend and a wife and, you know, a writer, but not anywhere on that list was looking after myself. And I realised that I'd put myself down really at the bottom of my list. So if somebody was doing a yoga, you know, wanted to do a regular yoga class, but more often than not, something would happen and somebody would want something done or somebody would ask me somewhere and I would kind of go, oh, forget the yoga, I'll just do that. And I'd always kept relatively fit, but I'd never actually checked in with myself. And one of the greatest shocks was the fact that cancer had happened on my watch, you know, that I hadn't noticed really. That, and I was just like, wow, I hadn't really checked in with myself. So now I live my life in a way that's much more, um, I hate the word, but mindful of um, of how I am. So that's part of the morning routine is kind of just to make sure that I've checked in with myself, that I know how I am. Um, and I'm kind of much more conscious about the choices that I make. I mean, I still eat and drink and do everything that I want, but I kind of do so in a, mo- and in a much more sort of conscious way. So if I get hammered, I'm like, okay, fine. I'll take one for, you know, I did. I'm not going to beat myself up, but I'm not going to do it every night. You know, I'm going to do it once in a in a while. Um, so it's that sort of thing, kind of. And maybe that sort of coincides with getting older as well. Um, one of the greatest things that I think you need to do, though, when you be you have been through this process, is to be able to leave it behind and to be able to choose to be well. And I say that with caution because I, I have people say, well, you can't choose to be well if you've got cancer. But you can. If you've been told that your cancer treatment's over and that you're well, you then have to be well. And actually, the worst bit of the cancer treatment was the bit after it had all finished. So all the hospital appointments had finished. I've been through all the I've been through the operation. I've been through the chemo, been through the radiotherapy. And then suddenly everything stops. Your hair grows back and everyone thinks that you're back to normal. But that's when the shock hits of it. And you have the psychological trauma of it hits you then. And you're kind of on your own. And that was very important for me to write about as well in my characters to kind of bring that in as well. And it is quite a long, takes quite a long time to get back on your feet. Um, But I remember watching a programme on the menopause that Kirsty Bork had done whilst I was going through my cancer treatment. And she interviewed Jennifer Saunders, who I love, who I have great, greatest admiration for. And she'd had breast cancer. she was talking to her about the menopause and then she's and she said to Jenny, uh, how how do you feel about breast cancer now? And she went, Oh, oh god, cancer, yeah, I never think about that. And I just the way she did that, she kind of dismissed it, it was gone, it was in the past. And I thought, well, that's what I want, you know, this is not gonna define me. Uh and so which you might think is a bit odd to be writing a book about cancer, but I feel that in some ways this is a kind of being able to say, no, this is something that's part of my life and has been part of my life, but I'm over it and I'm, you know, moving on. So I think that's what I hope it will help people understand when they read it. If they, I mean, it's, I didn't write it for people who are going through cancer as a self-help book. I wrote it for a fiction book to try and make other people understand what the experience is like. Yeah, it's just fascinating what you're saying about people, like when you left and you had your final kind of chemo treatment and you were kind of signed off, so to speak. That's a huge, huge part, I think, which has to improve, isn't it? Whereby people just get left on their own, having gone through the trauma of all that. And it's all about focusing on the problem. There's no support from that point onwards. And I, that's one of my big bugbears. It's like, let's see if we can get people inspired within the, the health systems um, to actually really get people um, 
back to full health and it's not just about you know, oh go do some go do some exercise it's about all the mental things you have to go through as well afterwards so. yeah and, I, and it just takes time I think it takes time to sort of come to terms with the fact that it's that it's happened to you and you do go through a sort of stage where you kind of mourn your health you know there's a real grief that you feel for the kind of old you but I think it's really important to be able to embrace the new you that, that you go okay well I I am here and I'm just gonna really go for it and it really love my life and live it to the full and I think you have to give your permission, yourself permission to do that and not be defined by something that happened to you. Excellent yeah now let's talk a bit about the gallows humour because I'm I'm guessing <laughs> there's probably yeah. quite a lot of it in the book Yeah. Um, and it's and it goes back to your point Josie about people being afraid to talk about it and oh my gosh god forbid laugh about it but tell us a bit about how your journey you know kind of portrayed in the in the in the book well, fiction, it's, I mean, it's, it's quite fun to write about it in the book because I've got I mean there's quite an amalgam of lots of different because it's about how everybody reacts and I've kind of put in because people are so well-meaning you know when people get cancer you know and, and nobody really knows how to be and so people give you say really inappropriate things and one of the things that's that Kira is up against which I found quite funny but I know I've really exaggerated it to comic for comic effect is um when you get cancer, one of the things that happens is that everybody wants to tell you their cancer stories. So you don't want to have anything to do with your own cancer. You are horrified that you have cancer. You don't want to be associated with it. But now you are a cancer magnet and everybody is going to tell you about their uncle who had pancreatic cancer and died in three weeks or <laughs> their aunt who had like every single part of her body chopped off and she's still going strong, although she's got a bit of a gummy hip now, you know. And so everybody tells you all these stories about and so, But as soon as she, like cab drivers, every, you know, my love talking to cab drivers, but, you know, every, the amount of times I was regaled with uh, stories of, oh, cancer, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, my cousin had cancer. And <laughs> you've come up with these horrific details of like this awful, slow and painful and torturous death. And you'd be like, no, don't tell me. So, you know, things like that that made me laugh. And also everybody, you know, there's a brilliant character in it that I really enjoyed. Who's like one of the school mums. And then um, she's just getting really bossy. She just wants to be the epicenter of the person who's just being really caring about cancer. And it's like the one that's going to coordinate all the school mums with all the dishes. And so, and this is the full Kira is kind of left with this mountains of food and people bring, have bought around casseroles. I mean, she has no idea how to sort of tetra pack them into the freezer and all the, you know, and her husband's like, well, we can cook. Why have we got, why have we got all this food? It's that sort of thing. So, you know, it's, it's stuff that happens, but with a bit of a comic edge on it. So it was really fun to write. You know, and I haven't offended any of my friends, I can tell you, because, you know, my friends are wonderful. And it is about the main point about this book is about friendship. It's about old friends and new friends. And it's about a friend that you can make for 60 seconds that will have a last, lasting effect. But it is, it's about female friendship. Fantastic stuff. And um, I mean, it sounds I mean, I've got to say this. It sounds like it could be an incredible film or TV show as well. Is that something which you're hoping for? Oh. the book? I mean, the Holy Grail, come on, chaps. Uh, yes, wouldn't it be lovely? Yes, I, yeah. Yeah, well, let's all, It's got all the feelings of like a, a yeah. Richard Curtis yeah. kind of, yeah? Yeah, 
Come on, film companies. <laughs> so we just put uh, out there. So just yeah, two things we're asking for today, folks. Yeah. If you're out there in, in Hollywood <laughs> yes, land, please. we want the Butterfly of Hope ladies to show up and we'd like yes, to please. land we'd a book like a nice deal. Uh, book deal. Sorry, a, oh, yeah, a, a film deal. deal. You know, thank you, please. Hollywood. Yes, no, let's go Hollywood. Yeah, no, 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 I think I, I mean, you know, there's agents on it, but I mean, there's a million, there's, it's very difficult to get anything made, as we all know. I mean, it is the Holy Grail obviously to have something made into a film we had all come we had come together made into a film and we wrote the um we wrote the screenplay and it was very exciting and Eric Fellner at Working Title said that it was one of the best first drafts that he'd ever he'd ever read and we were very excited about it and then they greenlit Bridget Jones and said uh we're not going to make it now at Working Title Film but you can go to Working Title Television where we probably got fired off the project, <laughs> having written several several iterations of the script. So there's quite a lot of a uh, learning experience there. But I loved writing scripts and I love kind of being involved in that. But it's, you know, I think you have to kind of choose what you're going to do and stick at it. And um, it was quite interesting getting cancer, actually, because when I was kind of very ill, I kind of thought, what is it that I want to do? Because this is a big crossroads in my life, you know, do I want to continue being a novelist with all the highs and lows that that goes with it? That, you know, sometimes there's, it's brilliant. Sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes you get money. Sometimes you poor as church mouse, mice, you know, it, that's how it, that's how it is. It's not consistent. Um, and I kind of really decided, no, I really want to be a novelist. This is what I do. This is how I am. This is how I roll. So, I mean, actually I'm just delighted to be able to give, be given the, chance to write more um and to keep doing what I love because the more you write the better you get that's the thing mm-hmm. and um and there's a big I know it's sort of frustrating because there's the whole you know the, the publishers really want to go for the new and they kind of go oh it's the first time novelist and it's the the new they always want the new but actually you learn so much as you write more um that actually the ones with more the authors with more uh experience are the ones that need investment. I'm just saying. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. So what's coming next from you, Josie? Well, um, I am writing the, my next Josie Lloyd book, which is working title is called The Seagulls. And it's uh, about a group of plucky women who go sea swimming in the uh-huh. cold water. And I, you know, it's been interesting because I started it on Christmas Day in 2020. So uh, I'm writing it sort of in real time now. And I do sea swim quite a lot. So um, I am involved in kind of those crazy women who go with dry robes and bobble hats. That's me. Uh, so I, uh, so it's quite an interesting thing to write about, but it's been an interesting thing. I mean, I don't know whether I will land up editing it, but I wanted to write something that was in real time set in these days that we have because for fiction writers particularly for contemporary fiction writers um do we mention covid do we mm. mention lockdown do we mention how it is or how so i've wanted to find a way of writing a book about the positives that have come out of covid rather than what we've lost what we've gained and actually for lots of us including me it's been a it's been a bigger appreciation of nature a bigger appreciation of my environment um a bigger understanding of a community uh, that I have locally so it's all of those things that I'm writing about which is quite fun so that's I'm about a third of the way through that one so that will be out next year but I mean I might land up editing it depending on how we get where we get to with Covid I mean who knows it might all be a dim and distant memory or it might be something that's 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's 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 a debate I see on a whole bunch of writers groups on Facebook. I mean, um, now listeners, we're record. This is going out in May, but we're recording this towards the end of of March, and there is light at the end of the tunnel uh, with regards to lockdown. So we're still in lockdown when we're recording yeah. this. But Line of Duty has just gone on TV, and that's set in real time. But no mention of COVID. It's in a parallel universe now where there's no mm. COVID, and so there's a whole bunch of authors I know who are just going. I'm going to pretend it never happened. And just get on with it. And there are others who are thinking, no, I, I really write in the real world. I, I have to, it's had a profound effect on me. I have to acknowledge what's uh, what 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 happened. So it's going to be fascinating seeing how writers cope with that and how the reading public, because I just today in the bookseller, some people were signed mm-hmm. up with you know deals about oh this is going to be the definitive COVID novel. I know I don't want to read. I don't want to read. I don't, no. I don't want to read it. No. I, I mean, personally, I don't want to read it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so I'm trying to write, I'm trying to navigate writing something that's real and true and honest whilst including it. But, yeah. you know, a not light sprinkling, really. a light sprinkling is all it needs, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating in years to come. I think almost more so in years to come when generations will be reading books that are written in this time, because it'll be almost like a historical um, point. Well, I mean, that- I'm, I'm old enough now for that to have actually happened to me in real life. Because our book was included, somebody, somebody got in touch with us and said, we're using Come Together as a definitive 90s guide to culture. <laughs> <laughs> because, because it's kind of, because it was before mobile phones. It's dating before mobile phones. It's Brilliant. kind of, it was, and it had like a lot of references to what was going on in London. So, uh, so actually that, that has already happened, that we, I'm a historical we, documenter. We completely missed a trick here, Mr. D. We should have, because our book, Back to Reality, is about time travel and she goes back to the mid-90s. And we should have oh. read your book if it's the definitive. Oh. We, that should have been our yeah. first book. We're going to have to rewrite, Mr. D. We're going to have to do a Absolutely, complete rewrite. Yeah. we have to do it again. <laughs> oh, my God. Although I had to give you a warning that somebody did actually contact me from Cosmopolitan Cosmopolitan, because they'd done an article on sex scenes in books and they tried to, they'd given readers the task of, like, uh, checking them out and somebody somebody written in and said that one of the sexies that I'd written on the stairs had given them a terrible neck and, <laughs> and that they were really injured <laughs> like your book's so, become yeah. the Karma Sutra yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Car- the Karma Dutra don't take it too literally is all I'm saying <laughs> No, no one's ever, no one's ever brought up the sex scene in our bookmark. We have to. Uh, oh, my wife did. Don't worry. Oh, did she? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And well, that was very much after <laughs> mobile phones because it's a sex scene that involves social media. Yeah, I won't oh. say anymore. You must read it, JC. Oh, I can't wait. I can't. I'm, I'm getting it. I want it. That sounds great. It, here's a here's a question for you. I mean, your book sounds so inspiring. I think it's going to inspire people who are you know connecting with what cancer must be like having you know experienced covid because it's life-threatening in in many ways for people so we're all kind of at that point in our lives where we recognize that there's 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 some much bigger things that are important than what we often kind of worry about on a day-to-day basis but for people who are listening to this now Josie or in years to come and maybe have been recently diagnosed with cancer or have been on a cancer journey for for a, a long time um or even people who've been alongside someone with a cancer journey some people either who are caring for a cancer yeah. uh, a patient and again i don't like to use that word as well because you don't get defined by having cancer um or people who have lost people with cancer 
what would you say to inspire them about writing during their process? I think for me, it was absolutely, completely and totally fundamental to my journey through cancer and my recovery post-cancer. And I cannot stress highly enough how important journaling it is. They've done some quite interesting studies. I was reading a, a thing on a cancer site. They've done some very interesting studies about the effect of journalism, journaling and journaling your kind of thoughts uh, on the effects of uh, the treatment on people. And they found that the people who write down how they're feeling have much better outcomes. It's a scientific fact, mainly because... When you go through cancer, you have so many feelings and you you do actually have to create quite, quite a front for the people that are caring for you in a lot of ways because you don't want them. You can see that they are, they are frightened and worried. And similarly, if you're somebody caring for somebody with cancer, it's you can't tell them how absolutely terrified you are. You can't put that on them. So having somewhere where you can safely write it down and write down all those feelings once you've written them down, they've kind of gone. They've they've lost their power. And I've always found that if you've had something in your mind that's really bothering you, if you write it down, you can actually see it, whether it's true or not. Um, and quite often, all of the fears that you write down, once you've got them on the paper, you can actually really see clearly that they're, you know, you, you know I'm going to die within a fortnight. Well, that's not true, you know. <laughs> that's not true that's not what I've been told by the medical team that's what's going on in here but writing that down you can get you can get rid of that so I think it's absolutely crucial and very important that people should be encouraged to write and I would say to anybody going through any kind of cancer treatment or looking after somebody with cancer just get a notepad and just write it all down and it doesn't you know nobody's going to read it nobody's going to judge you on it but the more you write and the more you write about what you're going through the easier it will be to process it all. And the gift one day, Josie, is you may end up potentially sharing that with other people, which is what you've yeah. done. So, yeah, just... I mean, I, I'm very, um, I'm, it's, it's, it's a little bit scary putting it out there because you know the Kira's journey and her medical journey that she goes on is very much matches mine. So I've been quite warts and all about kind of what it feels like to have your left breast chopped off. I mean, I'm not mincing my words here. Um, so it's interesting kind of writing that kind of stuff and having those things out in the world. But I also think it's really important to be honest. I think it's really important to to be authentic about this kind of experience and to write about it from the heart and write honestly. So, you know, I'm just going to see how it goes down with people. But I'm, I'm very proud of it. And, it, you know, I just feel very... Um, I feel very strongly that it's such a, a it's such a personal book and it's such a it's such a book with a message of positivity and hope that's an, and it's uplifting you know I don't want people there there are make them laugh make them cry there you go that's the formula absolutely <laughs> that is a great place uh, to end our conversation uh 
Josie, it's been just wonderful hearing you talk about your experiences, the way you write, and the Cancer Ladies Running Club, which is out now, folks. So uh, grab your copy immediately. Uh, if you've enjoyed uh, this, please subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast supplier. Uh, thanks, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. If you want to get in touch, drop us a line at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. And we're all over social media. So we're on Facebook as Bestseller Experiment, Twitter and Instagram as at Bestseller XP. Um, Josie, where can where can folks find you online? Uh, I am on Instagram at Josie Lloyd Writer. I am on Facebook at Josie Lloyd Writer. And I am on Twitter at Josie Lloyd Books. So you can find me. But I'm not, I'm, I have to, I'm, I'm not the world's greatest social media person, but I do, I do give it a whirl. I put some of my terrible pictures up on Instagram. So, you know, <laughs> do, do find me if you'd like to get in touch. Brilliant stuff, Josie. Well, thank you so much for coming on thank today. You, and, it's very nice to meet you. And thank you so much for sharing your journey, being vulnerable, putting yourself out there, writing this book. Thank you for the inspiration you're giving everyone out there and all the future people that will treasure that book, I'm sure. Um, and also, thank you so much for the brilliant laugh we've had today. I've really enjoyed this. It's been <laughs> absolutely great. What a brilliant, it's only, it's very early in the morning here in Vancouver and this is just the best start to my day ever. So thank you so much for (laughs) sharing your time with us. And um, if you would like to follow Josie's recommendations of writing every day, then join the 200 word challenges, 200wordchallenge.com. Even if it's just journaling folks, you don't even have to write a book, just get writing and see what happens. And if you're interested in joining the Academy, pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Josie, it's absolutely brilliant. Have a fantastic rest of your week. We wish you all the success with your new book. Oh, thank you, guys. That's just really lovely. And we look forward to maybe having you back on the show another time to share your ongoing journey with us. Thank you. I look forward to that. Brilliant. So it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.